Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 26, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, as our focus remains hyper-local to serve our immediate audience in the age of COVID. Today, we peel back the curtain of disaster medicine during the pandemic with Dr. Carl Schultz's frank and heartfelt insight. He is currently the Emergency Medical Services Medical Director at Orange County's Health Agency and for the full hour speaks as a seasoned disaster medicine practitioner and researcher at UC Irvine. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back. Returning to the show is my guest, Dr. Carl Schultz, Emergency Medical Services Director for the Orange County Health Agency. As things continue to fold in the age of COVID-19 pandemic, the recording of this interview reflects the ever-developing situation as it stands on May 22nd. Since Carl Schultz's last appearance on this show, we've had a different person occupying the White House a new U.S. Congress, new governor of California, a still familiar looking county board of supervisors, two to three new health care agency directors at Orange County. Oh, and yes, a pandemic that's brought the world to its collective knees. Dr. Carl Schultz is an internationally recognized expert in the field of disaster medicine, including all forms of weapons of mass destruction, preparation and response to natural disasters, such as earthquakes. He has international faculty appointments and is a consultant for the Department of Defense, as well as other <clears throat> national and international groups. He long ago was a folk rock DJ when he was an undergraduate at UCI in the 70s and later completed his medical degree at UCI as well. He completed residencies in internal medicine and emergency medicine. He comes to us today from his home in Seal Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Dr. Carl Schultz. Thank you very much for inviting me to be on the program. And when you last were on, we're, and we'll, we'll make reference to that, the last time you were on was in 2013, when after the the Boston Marathon bombing had occurred, both you and Dr. Koenig. So it's so good that you're available today. Well, I'd like to start with a history lesson in disaster medicine. Folks have been dusting off tomes on the Spanish flu, actually, which originated in the US, the pandemic, to search for lessons learned to get us out of this deep, deep trough we're in. How long, Carl Schultz, did it take for Americans to forget that the flu pandemic of 1918 occurred. Just to start off with a, a quick disclaimer, I'm, I'm here basically, uh, as you alluded, uh, as a uh, professor emeritus of emergency medicine and public health for the university. Uh, and my, my comments um, really should be construed as my personal views based on my role as a uh, person who's basically dedicated most of their career to disaster medicine. Um, and so I, I do also occupy a position as the medical director of the EMS uh, agency in Orange County, but I'm mostly wanting this to be viewed not as, as the, any type of representation of what the county is doing or not doing. This is really sort of my views uh, as a sort of a, an observer of this phenomenon and, 
as an expert in disaster medicine. So with that as an intro, the Spanish flu, I, I think for anyone who probably got influenza during that time period and anyone who lost family members, they probably recall it for the rest of their lives. For others who either didn't get infected at all or had only mild symptoms, there's a, a sort of a natural history where these the impact, the emotional impact fades with time. And and we know that for for most non-pandemic events, and I use that word because I can't think of another one at the moment, but something where essentially the entire country is involved simultaneously, um, in, like earthquakes or hurricanes, you really have a, a two to three year window to make any kind of change, start a new program, conduct a research project, whatever it is that your particular interest is, if you want to do something about what happened, you got about two to three years to do it in. And after that, there's a, a loss of interest and a loss of funding for whatever your particular goal or objective was, and it's very hard to do anything more with that. If you look at California's history of earthquakes, you can see that most of the advances that were made in earthquake engineering and in improving response paradigms were all done within two to three years after a sizable earthquake. And then after that, there's sort of a lull, and not much more happens until the next earthquake. So typically in these more focal events, you got a couple of years to do something, and then sort of interest goes elsewhere. With the Spanish flu, um, remember that was a time where vaccines really didn't exist by and large. You did have the smallpox vaccine, but the development of vaccines wasn't a booming business, and it wasn't a, 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 an area of intense research and development. It was really new. And so you didn't see a lot of emphasis on developing a vaccine. So the whole impact of the Spanish flu sort of lingered for several years. And it really wasn't until 1929 when the Great Depression hit that that sort of completely disappeared. And people were much more focused on this next kind of pandemic event, a, an event that engulfed the entire country, which was the Great Depression. And that then was front and center. And most other things sort of receded into the uh, into the background. And I just wanted to say that just wrapping a few minutes before this recording of our interview together, Governor Newsom just admonished the public to ward off any amnesia about the hazards as he was going to help try to set up guidelines for opening it up. So he's, he's I think, doing his level best to sort of remind people to resist that temptation to forget what they've just learned. And, th and this, these are all very fresh lessons that we're learning now about our new normal. Right, the, the new data that we're acquiring, the new knowledge that we're acquiring, I prefer that term rather than, than lessons learned because I, I think lessons are personal and then when you die, your lessons go away, but new knowledge and, and ah. the new, um, new data, those get incorporated into publications and, and they last forever. So people coming along a thousand years from now will have access to this knowledge and this, this data and won't have to go through the same thing all over again. Oh, God, I guess we really you know, have to do this again. And so then there's no progress. So this is a, this really, um, I think the, the knowledge and the data that we obtained from this experience will be published and will uh, become established uh, information for future generations on, on how in a more modern world, some of the, the things we did right and some of the things we did wrong. So could I just ask about a little bit about uh, your, the chain of command and where you fit in there in the organizational chart? I, I, can, I can get into a little bit a of little that. A little bit of that, okay. Um, 
we during a, an event like this, we like everybody else implement an incident command system. And I am not the incident commander, um, and that's appropriate as it should be. Um, we have a, a, a very competent uh, individual who really sort of directs the show, who's very open to input from from physicians, from tacticians, from um, those in, in the logistics side and the finance side. Really, a, a wonderful woman, and couldn't couldn't have asked for a better incident commander for us. But she also has to report up through a chain of command, and it it works. Pretty well, I, you know. It's, it's kind of ironic because before I took this job, I would not say I was the most uh, warm and fuzzy advocate for uh, county government, but um, I really had to eat crow on this because the people I've encountered have been phenomenally talented, and I, I count myself as really fortunate to have well, been in this group. You've been flying at uh, you know fifty, seventy, eighty thousand feet with all of your national, international consulting, but you can see that connection of local government responsibilities and and constituents putting stock in what their local government authorities have to to post for them you can see that essential part of governing right and matter of fact i'll, I'll use an example on the local level when when we started out um, when this thing was first evolving and we we formed our our agency's operations center and we started trying to manage the pandemic and on a local level in orange county um, one of the issues came up is if, if the hospitals became overwhelmed and we needed a uh, an alternative care site where we might mm -hmm. be able to decompress the hospitals, should that be a site where we take patients who are not infected or a site where we take patients who in fact are infected? And our, our feedback from our agency to the greater organization was that it should be for COVID positive patients. And that didn't initially, there was some, some difficulty in accepting that initially, but the people to, to their credit, listen and allowed us to make our arguments and eventually came around to making that decision and so right now uh, what we have at, at the state level the state is managing fairview um, state hospital facility in costa mesa uh, correct and they're putting patients in there that are covid positive and and it's reassuring to know that through the chain of command we can our voices first of all are heard they don't always agree with us but they listen and that Oftentimes, we can impact behavior, we can Im impact decision-making. Uh, and so that has been a really uh, refreshing and invigorating experience. And uh, I've, like I say, I've, I've come around to thinking that the people we have working uh, at our uh, agency operations center are very good at their job. And I believe we're, as, as citizens of Orange County, that we're being as well taken care of as is possible. Wow. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Carl Schultz, Emergency Medical Services Medical Director for the Orange County Health Agency, speaking today more in his capacity as of emergency medicine and public health faculty at UCI's medical school. So the county resources have shifted away over this last decade, away from public health to law enforcement. So what's your take on that? You know, the, that's a, a very complicated situation. And, and as a medical person, um, of course, I would have an inherent bias about public health. Having said that, um, I don't see it as an either or. It's, it's not a zero sum game. Um, you can't run uh, an effective 
society um, that is, is, is a great place to live and to work and to raise your children without both. You can't not have public health. You can't not have, and that's a double negative, I apologize, um, police, law enforcement. Can't do it. You've got to have both. Um, and to, to take from one either way to feed the other makes no sense. Um, and so I, I think we have underfunded law enforcement for a long time. It's a really difficult job. And I don't get killed in my job, at least most of the time, unless I'm working in the ER and there's a pandemic. Yeah. But essentially, my job, I don't risk my life. Police, law enforcement, that's their job is to risk their life. Uh, so, you know, um, I, I just don't think you can cannibalize law enforcement and you've got to fund it. On the other hand, equally important, if you don't have public health, the money you might save by not funding public health, you're going to pay in putting people in the hospital. It could have been prevent that diseases could have been prevented by public health, but didn't happen because we didn't have a robust public health response. So now we pay to put them in the hospital and give them expensive drugs and all that kind of stuff. So it really is, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Um, but if you pay me now and get a public health service up and running, it's cheaper than if you don't, and then I have to pay you, and I pay you later, it's a lot more expensive. So I, I, I don't, I don't agree with cannibalizing one agency like that to feed another. Um, I, I just, uh, I understand that it might mean more taxes. Believe me, I'm not wild about paying taxes, but you simply can't have an effective society if you don't have a robust law enforcement uh, agency and you don't have a robust public health. It, you're gonna, it, it's, it's gonna, you're gonna pay for it in one way or another. So you might as well pay for it in something that you can sort of amortize over a couple of years like taxes rather than with perhaps your own life or, or lots of expenses coming down on your health insurance because all these people come in and they get sick and it's really expensive. Okay, so when were you, Dr. Schultz, first aware that the COVID-19 pandemic would be our disaster? It's hard to quantify it as sort of like, on this day at this time, I was aware. It, it's more like um, an awareness that dawns over some period of time. Um, when it first broke out in China and we were starting to see a few cases in the United States, no, I didn't think that much about it. I viewed it as a, another infectious disease, and I, wasn't, I was wrong, but I viewed it as an infectious disease that I thought we could contain just like we did SARS and um, to some extent MERS. And I, and I thought that with contact tracing and, and testing, we would, we would be okay. And then we started to see a couple of cases where the individuals could not be traced to any known source of exposure. And after a couple of those cases, the public health people and started uh, made the, the conclusion that it was now outside of containment and was in now community spread. Like the and second or third week in the second or third week in January, approximately. When when they made the I can't remember exactly what date it was, but when the public health, the California Department of Public Health concluded that we now we're witnessing community spread. So outside of any known associated factor that we could easily identify that the disease was, was now essentially um, becoming out of control, that we were, we were in, in a more precarious position. 
that's when I became more concerned. And I remember when, when they started having all of the diseases breaking out in the nursing homes and the impact that was having on, on staff, that's when I thought that we would probably end up seeing this um, across the country. So it, it took a while. I would, it, I'd love to be able to say it was a genius that I saw it coming, you know, January 1st, but no, I wasn't. Um, it took a while for me to sort of get a grip on it. But um, once, once we started seeing community spread and once we started seeing the outbreaks in nursing homes in Seattle, that's when it's like, okay, we have a problem. Well, you were talking about the new knowledge versus lessons learned. The new knowledge was understanding how, I mean, that this was a novel, novel virus. I mean, when did that dawn as a, or, or you knew that it was novel, but you had assumed that there would be some kind of public health infrastructure that would do sufficient contact tracing earlier? Well, it was, it was a, an assumption that, that I, it was incorrect on my part, that the disease was going to behave like all the other ones that we'd seen. Okay. And it doesn't. And, and so part of the problem was that when you have a disease that can be spread by asymptomatic individuals, yeah. it makes contact tracing more difficult. Certainly, with a robust testing program, we could have largely overcome some of that and mitigated what we saw, um, but uh, we did not have a robust testing program. And so we, we had to restrict our testing to symptomatic individuals, and that really sort of left us open to where we are today. And so, Dr. Schultz, how aware were you, in whatever capacity you want to draw from here, that the national strategic stockpile had disappeared, more or less? <laughs> um, well, that's a good question. It's hard to get good data about the, the, the national strategic stock, the, the, um, uh, the stockpile that the federal government supports. Um, they keep a lid on a lot of what's in it and where it is. And so it's hard to get a grip on that, but um, knowing a little bit about stockpiles in general, one would intuit that, that over time, it would become harder and harder to maintain the stockpile, you can replace drugs, masks, equipment that expire or become dysfunctional over time, but it's expensive and it requires appropriations. A partial solution to that is to extend the expiration dates, but you can't do that indefinitely. Sooner or later, you have to start replacing things. And I was, I was concerned about how much of that was going on. I didn't know because I couldn't find out, but I we couldn't just stockpiles in general local ones that we have for instance i know how difficult it is to maintain them and that this the the stockpile that the federal government supports was not really designed for natural disasters it was predominantly designed to handle uh terrorism that was that was the thing that that, that funded this that's what was the which trend. is a short which is a shorter time frame right correct. To, correct that this is going on and on and we'll talk about the the temporal aspects later right. on but so you can sort of mass up boom distribute right. and then then it goes away not just like steady feeding right. of that stockpile and the strategy of using the stockpile as sort of a bridge an interim intervention to vendor managed inventory which was right. sort of the longer term mm -hmm. that all would work 
in a in a situation where you weren't simultaneously emptying every strategic national stockpile in the country, and where over time the vendors had off um, outsourced their production to other countries, and so you had sort of a perfect storm where where even the vendors who were really going to step up and, and be the solution to sustain this over weeks couldn't couldn't step up because of, of the limitations in their own supply chain, which was spread all over the world. And of course the whole world's involved. So it, it all kind of fell apart. And and once the stockpile was exhausted, there there wasn't an easy solution to continuing the stream of PPE. Uh, and so we we found ourselves in this rather tenuous situation. So I guess part of the science of disaster medicine with this kind of, and I love it that you're giving us the new knowledge terminology here, that the supply chain is a part of disaster medicine. It's here and now. It's a, it's a management element of disaster medicine. Right. It, it's, it's part of the logistics of, of dealing with a, um, especially uh, an ongoing event. Uh, most of our experience tends to be with regional events that are relatively self-limited, and the strategic national stockpile would be really good at handling that. Once you get into something like this, it it becomes more of a challenge. And in I, you know, the you need it's not enough to have funding to to establish a, a, an extra supply of material and medications and all of that. You need to manage it going forward. So if you're going to stockpile ventilators, you have to do what they call preventive maintenance or PMs. You have to do PMs on them once a year to make sure the ventilators remain functional. And if there are some seals that, uh, that start to rot out, they're replaced. The batteries may leak, so you have to replace those. So there's an ongoing maintenance of those things that have to go on, and that costs money. And so, for instance, Orange County, we had a stockpile of material and ventilators. but we didn't have any funding to maintain them. So it became more and more difficult to feel good about the fact that, yeah, we had the ventilators, but we don't know if they'll work or not. Um, and it was, it was very difficult to get funding from the federal government to maintain them. So that is, is, is part of the downside for some of these things. And, and so whenever one looks at stockpiling, which is a viable option, that, that is definitely a way to go to expand inventory so that you can handle uh, an unpredicted demand, there's a maintenance aspect of it that's as critical as buying the stuff itself. I guess I, I want to sort of get in your head about how close did Orange County get to a like the red level of not enough supplies, or we, we did we get there? And the other, uh, a little more sort of soft ball for you is, how did you feel when you saw legions of domestic, the, in the domestic realm, stitching up face masks. I've, I've stitched them up myself. Yeah, that, that's painful. Um, the, first, to, to focus on Orange County, we actually more or less um, dodged a bullet. We did not have um, a, a huge overwhelming of our hospital system. Uh, we did not have a meltdown. Uh, we did have some um, some concerns about PPE and shortages, but our warehouse did have 
a reasonable amount of masks to sustain people in the short run. But, but uh, there, were, there were hospital employees, though, that reported that they were told no masks at all. And it was like it created a tension between the, the rank and file and management about what was the policy because they knew that the protocols were different now about face masks. So, so it's a sort of a sliding scale how much, how well it was managed. That, especially if you go outside Orange County, there were many more of those kind of events that went on. And, and it, was, it was tight for a while. But as it turns out, um, the state was, was, at least in the short run, was pretty good at supplying uh, Orange County's needs. And um, there, there were a couple of situations where some of the, 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 the nursing homes, the, the skilled nursing facilities, had issues with PPE and dental offices. But the critical hospitals, we had 25 acute care hospitals in Orange County. They were able to make it through with some issues where the PPE was in short supply and was not as much as they would like. Um, they were going to have to reuse them, which is a problem, or uh, recycle them where they, they would send them off-site for sterilization and then reuse them. Mm -hmm. um, and even as EMS, we extended, we permitted the uh, paramedics to do what's called extended use where they put the mask on and just don't take it off is because of the concern about running out of uh, N95 respirators. So there was, uh, it, it got close in some areas uh, and some, there, there wasn't always enough to do what we exactly we wanted to do, but there wasn't a situation where we had a wholesale meltdown of, of equipment where people were routinely having to go without any sort of personal protective equipment at all or uh, very uh, inferior in, um, sort of makeshift interventions to, to try to protect them. So, so yeah, did it happen in a, in a couple of cases? I'm sure it did. We were not impacted to the same degree that other places were. So as the governor is setting up guidelines for the economy to reopen, it's going to create additional demand in multiple sectors for personal protective equipment. So I'm trying to think of what the bar, what the chart looks like, the graph, as the, the demand is going to increase for PPEs, and there may be, and there's anticipated a surge maybe early mid-fall, so that, that we could be back where we were with a huge shortage. It, depending on, on how effective we are at um, stockpiling and replacing our inventories, we may be faced with that. that that's, that's not... Um, at all uh, a low probability event. On the other hand, uh, we do have some time. We have been able to identify um, vendors that can and are producing. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a race, especially since we don't know exactly what we're going to encounter uh, as we start to return to, to work and, and loosen restrictions. I, I think it's inconceivable to me that we would have less demand uh, over time. Right. Um, I think we will see a surge in demand again, um, and I think everybody knows that. Uh, and so I think to the extent that we can, we're looking how we might, um, at least the, the, the federal government is looking at masks, and uh, I think even the, the state has um, uh, issued inquiries about where they might get additional supplies of PPE and N95 respirators and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a challenge. It's it's not as bad as when we first started, but it could get 
more more difficult to manage if there's a huge surge. If there's a, a, a some surge but not a big one, then we, we might uh, be able to manage with what we'll be able to buy. Hard to know. And there's, on my mind, the fiscal impact of the shortage that it required everybody to go into a bidding war for face masks and it, it was six, seven times more expensive. So the fiscal impacts of that bidding war is what we're paying for now with our plummeting economy. It's going, we have so many tabs to cover. So it, it's not, uh, it, that, that shortage is gonna sort of remain with us. The other, um, as you were talking about repurposing and servicing ventilators that were in storage, I don't know whatever happened to the ventilator that the veterans advocates were trying to work with Dr. Gary Wong, a pulmonologist in Sacramento that had a really terrific, inexpensive, that, uh, and a, an easy to use ventilator. And it sort of, it was in the LA Times and then it disappeared, the, the news item. And he was in the process of one looked around that he's working with venture capital to sort of push that into a much uh, broader production, but it disappeared and it seemed like that opportunity was unconscionable. Were you aware of Dr. Wong's device? Yes, there's actually several devices that have been produced. And the, the reason it disappeared was nothing sinister. It just turned out that hospitals did not get totally overwhelmed and we never, ran out of ventilators. We had, as it turned out, maybe we're lucky, maybe it's because we managed this event fairly reasonably and, and we didn't see a big surge. Mm -hmm. and, and I think some of the, the number of cases in Orange County, which have been pretty small compared to everybody else, uh, some of it is luck, of course, and some of it is skill. But when you combine good skill and good luck, you ended up with not an overwhelming amount of demand for ventilators. Certainly went up, absolutely went up we had enough supply. So we never got into the situation which we were worried about, where we would be overwhelmed and would, would run out of ventilators. We didn't get close to actually running out of ventilators. So that but was there, good news. So these kinds of things where people are developing them on the fly, the, the imperative to bring them online is less if there isn't sufficient demand. And that's one of the reasons the governor was able to temporarily lend ventilators to other states because we just weren't seeing right. a huge consumption, and it seemed a little bit unethical to be sitting on a resource you know is life-saving, and other people don't have enough, and we have a surplus, and we don't do anything with it. I, 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 I understand that you want to be able to get it back if you need it, but it was pretty clear, current track of things over the short run, that we were not going to need them. Right. And so it was appropriate to send them out. And in the meantime, I know that there are companies working with some of the, the I, I forget which automaker, but one of the automakers is making um, new ventilators. So uh, we're, we're forward, think, in that yeah. position. We're in a better position, I think, going forward as far as ventilators are concerned. I think that the bigger issue is going to be overall hospital resources. If we have a huge surge, then we'll, we'll may over, we may then get back to that original scenario we worried about of overwhelming the hospitals, which we, we didn't see. In this, in this event. Well, speaking in a different way about the surge is all the collateral health issues where there's a deferred treatment of cases like diabetes, you know, where people are moving to more severe diabetic 
manifestations and they're, they're getting closer to having have limbs amputated. So how would you take up that topic? That starts to get a little bit outside of the acute response and mm -hmm. sort of the management of long-term recovery. And that is one of the reasons we're so nervous about opening up too soon. Number of diabetics, number of heart attacks, the number of strokes, number of kidney infections, they're still there. Right. They're still there just like they always were. Only now we've added to the mix an additional pool of patients that's variable with COVID. And if that pool expands dramatically, it will basically saturate the healthcare system. And so even if you think the disease won't affect you because you're young and healthy, if you get in a car accident, you're a trauma, you're bleeding out, you got to go to a trauma center, we can't get you in. Trauma center is completely saturated by all the other diseases plus COVID, and there's no room at the end. So that's sort of what the short-sightedness about why we don't have to worry if we're young and healthy because even if we get the disease, nothing's going to happen to us. That's not the issue. Yeah, granted, okay, let's say that's true, fine. But there's nothing to say that you're not going to end up with a gunshot wound or a car accident or pneumonia or a perfed appendix. All those diseases still happening. You need an, a hospital for that. And if there's no room, you're going to suffer. So whether or not you ever get COVID is irrelevant. You're still at risk if somebody else gets COVID. Right. And I, a previous guest, an epidemiologist, was talking about you fracture femur and sever your artery <laughs> and it's not treated, then it there is a fatality directly, Absolutely. indirectly, but part of that. So for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. My guest is Dr. Carl Schultz. He's Emergency Medical Services Medical Director for Orange County Health Agency and Professor Emeritus of Emergency Medicine and Public Health at UCI's Medical School. Well, I guess I'd like to have you think about, you know, epidemiologist Andrew Neumer just yesterday was quoted in the New York Times, he's talking about 50 states have 50 approaches to this pandemic. So I guess I just want to tap you. Which would be the governor you'd most prefer to be collaborating with? Um, first of all, his, his observation, I think, is, is to a certain extent correct, because there hasn't been a strong national leadership focus and direction that basically has been left to the states, you're going to have various views of the elephant, depending on where you are, and you will end up with various solutions to the problem. I think the, the people I would most like to work with are those who acknowledge that as governors, they're political leaders whose job it is to do the right thing for the most people in their state. And to some, that will mean extending lockdown orders longer. For others, it will mean opening up sooner, but more carefully. And as long as they're listening and understand that this isn't their area of expertise, the medical side, they've got to listen to the medical people. The economic side, they have to listen to people that understand economies and what the impacts are going to be long term. So it is the governors who don't have a hidden agenda, don't believe that one size fits all, and basically listen to people do no more than they do, and then synthesizing that feedback and then taking an action that's supported by rationale. Those are the people I work with, and that would be both Republicans and Democrats. Okay. 
you're not going to call out any particular specific Oh, yeah. I, I mean, if you want to say, uh, is there one person who I, I think has done a really good job of it? I'd say, yeah. Um, and, and obviously, I'm a Californian. But do I, do I think that Governor Newsom has done about as good a job as a guy could do, given that he's not a physician and he's not an economist? I think I would say he's a rational person. He understands the dynamics. He also understands the pressures. I mean, you, you can't always just listen to the doctors. You gotta listen to the economists as well. And it's a balancing act and I think he gets it. And so I don't think he's gonna wait until it's medically perfect to open the state. I don't think he can, but he's going to hang on as long as he can without really doing substantial damage that may be irreparable. And then he's gonna to have to start to open up the country. I get that, you know, I, I wouldn't wanna be in his shoes. Uh, it's a really, really tough position to be in, but I feel like whatever happens to us as Californians, it was the best we could do under the circumstances. And you put somebody else in there, you could only do worse. You wouldn't do better. So I like his approach to basically trying to do things to the extent that it's humanly possible that's data-driven. Well, when I think about other office holders that would have been in his place, and I know you're, in, you're from Travis Allen's assembly district, and you probably know Travis Allen pretty well. I'm just, when I want to, think about the possibilities and I wonder what Travis Allen would be doing in this. I think it's very important that we appreciate how the electoral process is critical to our safety. I actually don't um, know him well enough to comment. And sometimes politics can overshadow good judgment. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, when confronted with a, a, a serious crisis, people who have been known to be viewing things in a more political lens, understand the consequences of failing to listen to all sides and surprise people and rise to the occasion and behave in a more rational fashion for the, the general good of all. And so I don't know Travis Allen's background well enough, or I've not interacted with him to know one way or the other. So I, I, <laughs> I can't address that. So when you're talking about timeframes, about opening up and all that, and I think in a general a question is, when, Dr. Schultz, will all of this be over? How will we know? Um, we'll, we'll eventually know when the data tells us that um, the spread is basically um, resolved. Uh, we have ways of measuring the spread of disease in a population, and um, those... Uh, rather objective measures will tell us that we have control of disease. There's a bunch of kind of geeky things I could mention, but sure. probably not going to be a big deal. But um, uh, th there are well-known epidemiologic and public health measures of disease spread that tell you when you're really getting control of the situation when you're not. So I think we will have a pretty good idea when we're approaching herd immunity and when um, we can really start to relax all restrictions. Um, I, I, we're not there yet, I can, that I can tell you. But um, I think we will be able to identify that eventually, but it's gonna be a while. Is that when we have a vaccine? Is that's the necessary that and probably sufficient? Be the, the final jeopardy answer to the, the challenge we face. I mean, there's, there's one philosophy that just says, release the hounds, you know, let everybody get infected. We'll have lots of deaths, but we'll be done with this thing, and then we can move on. 
and we'll have herd immunity and life will go on. Um, yeah, you could do that. Um, that would probably be, um, in some respects, less expensive. In other respects, it could be incredibly expensive in the impact it has on the public psyche and the amount of human toll this would take could be unrecoverable. But it's an option. I mean, that's, 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 when you talk about things, you don't want to prejudge anything. So you, that's certainly one option. Obviously, I would not be in favor of that. The other is to try and, and keep deaths low enough over a period of time without completely strangling the economy so that the vaccine can then provide in rapid fashion, relatively rapid fashion, uh, herd immunity. I honestly think that when people start dying again like they did in New York, it's just going to be too difficult to sustain business as usual. I think they're going to have to relock down the economy. Um, and so what's the, what's the balance is to try to open it up. I agree with that, to, to, to try to, to make things better than they are now, accepting some risk and just monitoring the risk. But when we can really safely say we are done with this, I don't see how that will happen prior to a vaccine. Do you know when you'd expect that? Because there's obviously, I, I find it in various circles of mine is whenever there is a release from the White House or there's a marketplace kind of discussion, there is a vaccine in a certain time uh, within the next, in, in a near term. So, so that, that kind of goalpost is sort of moving around for where people expect that this vaccine hero is going to show up. So um, that, that's a complicated problem to educate an entire societal public. But um, when do you think it might reasonably available? And what do you think are the chance of side effects? Um. What will eventually happen is whatever vaccine we get will probably have minimal side effects because that's one of the criteria to actually approve a vaccine for use. Um, if a vaccine kills 2% of the people that get it, <laughs> what difference does it make? The disease is killing 2% of the people who get it. So you're not, you're not achieving anything. Yes. So yeah, it has to have reasonably low side effects for it to be a substantial contributor to human health. So I, I think um, there will always be some side effects, but I, I suspect any vaccine that is licensed, they will be minimal and acceptable. I'm not a vaccine expert. So, you know, when you start talking about what are the, the challenges to develop a vaccine, you're going to have to get somebody else to comment on that because I don't know. I do know that over time when you study pandemics, when you look at vaccine development, it does appear that what we have been hearing 12 to 18 months where something is actually in the community now and being administered to people uh, is not an unreasonable estimate. And yeah, there's, having done research, I can tell you that to think that something is gonna go from conception to, to distribution without a problem is, is really optimistic thinking. Things always go wrong. I can't, I've never been engaged in any kind of, of research project or long-term endeavor where something hasn't gone wrong and delayed process. We overcame it, but it just seems inconceivable that, that they could move forward with the vaccine without one problem. Maybe it will be the exception of who's the rule. I don't know. But I think if I were going to bet a large sum of money, I would bet that there will be some issues that'll come up that, will, that won't get this thing out by the first of the year. And, but I do, think, I do think we will get one. I, I'm very confident of that. 
uh, we have the technology, we have the science, we have the knowledge, um, but it, things that we think we know, we may not know, we may have to go back to the drawing board a couple of times before we finally do get the correct knowledge about what it is that needs to be done to make this vaccine work, but I think we will get one. And I think 12 to 18 months is, is about as good as we should be planning for, at least right now. And that's what the cool heads have been saying for a long time. But the, as I said, the goalposts keep moving around. And I think now as we're counting down to less than six months till we have a general election in the U.S., the temptation for it for a partisan advantage to be scored with promising prematurely is huge, don't you think? I, I, I feel for these guys. I mean, you know, I'm not... I don't have to run for election. Um, I have a nice job. And as long as I don't do something really stupid, um, I'm probably going to hang on to it. Um, but you know, these guys, you know, they, this, they got to run for election. And, and it, it's, it's hard to, to expect all, uh, or any one, I should say, any one individual to resist temptation. But I think one could expect that a plurality of people should be able to acknowledge that, that, this, that there is this temptation to, to overpromise with the risk of under-delivering. And, and I think that's happened. I think um, people have stepped forward and said that it's not impossible that these uh, more optimistic predictions might happen. I, I mean, every once in a while, things do go well, and you never run into a glitch. It's just very unlikely. The odds are not good that you will go from soup to nuts without one substantial glitch in the system that delays things. And so I think, um, boy, would I, would I be happy? And would I be absolutely saying, yep, you were right. Got one January 1st, who would have thought it? That's wonderful. But if you're trying to manage 340 million lives, that's a lot to ask to, to put all your eggs in that basket. And I think you have to be more realistic. Look at, at the lessons of history. Look at the, at the, at the knowledge we have on the, the science that's been developed around vaccines and say, this has been our overwhelming experience in when, when we do develop things that are successful and efficacious. It takes this long. And um, I think that 12 to 18 months is remarkably short compared to what it used to be. It was in the order of years before. So if we could get a vaccine within 12 to 18 months, I think that's about as good as one could possibly hope. That would be great. So I'm concerned with disinformation campaigns that are now underway. We have that pandemic film that's apparently very slickly produced. It looks really legitimate. There's echo chambers like we've never seen. There are ads that were already, we were told months ago that were taken out to, to push out on social media, all kinds of other disinformation. People don't even know they're being disinformed. So I think to use an analogy from earlier times that your voice of reason about the appropriate time frame to expect a vaccination to be with us, it's your voice is the voice a normal human voice in an Iraq arena where there's a live performance going on. We're not sure, I'm not sure they're gonna, enough people will hear Dr. Carl Schultz and other cool heads with what's reasonable about that. So I, I, I want everybody to think about that as we're heading into the next uh, you know, tsunami of, 
of bad faith kinds of communications going on. Well, I, I wanted to turn to, it's, it's the pedagogy, it's the, the training in disaster and emergency medicine about the kind of burnout that the healthcare workers, especially in the very epicenters in New York City and in New Jersey nearby, how does your field deal with that downside of the career? My field? Not well. Yeah, um, emergency physicians are, are notorious for thinking that they, they can handle it all, you know, no matter what comes at them, and, and a lot of times they do. That's how they get but, their jobs done, right? right they have right. to feel that way. You have to feel like it doesn't matter what comes through the door, and no matter how bad things are, you can handle it, otherwise you wouldn't go to work. But it can be also an Achilles heel because there are situations where you can't. And when that happens, it can be a serious challenge to your, to your mental health. And the, the biggest issue, I, I remember when, when I was, I was never in this situation, first of all, so nothing like this, but in situations where I felt that things were beginning to, to fall apart or where you were being overwhelmed, was when you felt that there wasn't support for what you were trying to do. Uh, and people didn't understand what you were faced with and the expectations were simply unrealistic. That's when, when things really get depressing. And so when uh, some of the uh, of my colleagues felt that no one was listening to them and, and wasn't, didn't understand how dire things were getting, yeah, it, it, it can lead to, to mental health issues. And it's hard. Um, there are some facilities that, some hospitals that actually recognize this as a threat, not just for emergency physicians, but uh, for nurses, for for, um, the whole staff, I'm everybody, you know, they, yeah. they're all in this situation, uh, and not, not so much necessarily in Orange County, but in other places where they literally weren't sure they were going to get through a shift um, without just a lot of people dying from lack of care. I mean, they, were, they were very stressed out and feeling very sort of uh, uh, unsupported and, and, un and overwhelmed. And, and that's just a really difficult situation to deal with. Some places understood that and did provide some avenues for support, mental health support, but it's not been a priority for, at least across the board, for our specialty. Um, but I do want to acknowledge that there are some facilities that, that did, really did step up in that, in that area and actually funded physicians to try and, and provide support to, to the, the frontline healthcare workers, the ICUs, ERs, uh, ORs, all that stuff. It was a very vivid image from the, it was the top of the fold Sunday on the New York Times Sunday edition of a nurse absolutely collapsed in an overstuffed chair, obviously at a hospital. And the, the quote accompanying the images, I cannot shut my brain off. So it's, it's sort of, it's, I, I, it's, I don't, it's mental and physical, I guess, the toll. And I don't know if, if disaster medicine Emergency medicine is worried about an attrition rate when a pandemic like this hits. You're going to run yeah. out of people you need. Yeah, there there is a risk. It, it, there is development. There is um, ongoing research looking at at dealing with mental health assessment across the board, not not just of physicians, but of the public in general, trying mm -hmm. to identify those at risk and and maybe. Um, 
identifying them for earlier intervention. Uh, some of my colleagues have been working on that for quite a while uh, and it has shown a lot of promise. But the focus on, on physicians and on healthcare professionals in general is now beginning. I think this, this pandemic will bring that more to the fore in a more systematic way. But yes, uh, disasters do, do, uh, do raise that as an issue. And uh, I do know that the individuals who are in the field in the past, when they've had to go into more focal disasters, like uh, there was a very large train crash in Russia many decades ago, and they were reluctant. They took at the time they took in some very young individuals who couldn't handle the carnage, and mm. there was uh, suicides afterwards oh. um, by some of the younger responders. So uh, there are there are real serious impacts on on first responders and public health people. So this is is something that does in fact it, it is recognized, but it needs uh, further development. So while we're talking about the career development, professional development, all this, I guess I just want to move a question up a little earlier than I expected was, is the increased interest in public health uh, now, is that, uh, is that going to be supporting the advancement of disaster medicine? Because the, the dean of the, the program in public health is saying that applications are up, ladies and gentlemen. So do you see that that increased interest in enrollment is going to advance disaster medicine too. I think, I mean, I, I've always said disaster medicine is really applied public health. Yes. Um, and matter of fact, in my fellowship, we uh, strongly encouraged uh, our fellows to get a master's in public health as well as completing the fellowship. We thought it was that critical. Mm -hmm. So I know that public health is a separate field and, and I don't necessarily want to be so arrogant as to think that just because you're interested in public health, you'd also want to be a disaster physician. The two are clearly respectable fields, and and really good people can want to be in public health. And I have more power to them. I we definitely mm -hmm. experts in public health. Um, the overall environment that is generated by a pandemic probably will encourage more people to look at disaster medicine. So I would I would like to see this as something that is where where both fields would benefit. I I don't think if disaster medicine benefits and public health doesn't, that's necessarily a good solution. We really need public health people um, in, a, in an ongoing basis. And I'm encouraged that he said that. I'd be great if we saw more people interested in, in getting active in the clinical aspects of public health. I think that would be a, a huge blessing. And yeah, I think also that would also benefit. So not so much inside the field, but for in the broader societal consumption. So how about the specter, Dr. Schultz, of a natural disaster coming in addition to COVID-19, how do you think we'll manage the wildfires? They're coming. There's, there, I don't know about an earthquake. I, I actually interviewed a local kingmaker. I, I said, you know, when we have an earthquake, it's going to wipe out all of our rainy day funds. I didn't know it was going to be a pandemic that was going to do that instead. But I, how will the wildfires, the earthquakes, or even a nuclear biochemical attack, how are we poised to handle the next crisis on top of the ongoing pandemic? If we were to get a large-scale disaster uh, on top of an ongoing pandemic, it will make responding to that definitely more difficult. Definitely which? If we get, let's say, for instance, just wildfires, we know we're going to get those. Right, they're coming. And, and we get the wildfires, and we haven't really been able to uh, get control of uh, COVID-19. And let's say that 
worst case situation, we are um, we're, we are seeing a huge spike and we're having to start to cut back and, and even in some places reinstate uh, uh, stay at home orders. And then there's a huge outbreak of a fire. Um, it will definitely do more damage. It will definitely be harder to control and more people will die. And there just aren't enough resources to cover all of those things. I mean, if you look at firefighters, many of them are paramedics. And so we're already spread kind of thin in that area. Um, and if right. we start pulling large numbers of paramedics uh, offline to fight fires, which would be an appropriate decision to make, uh, it just leaves less of them available to respond to 911. And, you know, it's, there's just so many resources you have. And so as you deploy to one, the other is going to suffer. So, yes, I, I think I think we will see wildfires. I think there's a, a fair chance that if it happens on top of a, a surge or a continual demand from COVID-19 on medical resources and local resources, that it will be more difficult to fight and we will probably lose more homes and probably more lives. I think it will, they will get it. I think they will get it under control and they will extinguish the fires eventually, but it will be more costly in both lives and homes. We know that the governor is anticipating them. He's, he talked in a presser in the last two or three days about ordering the top of the line fire trucks to meet wildfire hazards. So we know that he's thinking about that. So that's, right. that proactiveness is somewhat comforting, I guess. Well, there are a lot of other questions going on in Orange County, but you've been so generous with your time, Dr. Schultz. I'm going to bring them up either with you at a later date or with a future guest. I can't ask for more. I so appreciate. It's been such an instructive round. Thanks for all the time you're giving us today. You bet. And thanks for, again for inviting me to be on the program. My guest was Dr. Carl Schultz, Emergency Medical Services Director for Orange County Health Agency and Professor Emeritus of Emergency Medicine and Public the Health Faculty. The interview is available MC in my podcast website, askaleader.com. Oh, and if you want to drop me a note with the guest or topic submission, or just tell me what you think of the show, or heck, tell me that you're listening, email's right there on the KUCI website in my show tab. C-S-H-A-M-B-A-U-G-H at KUCI.org. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, Ben LaFell's returning to the show with some amazing urban and pandemic number crunching. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Be good, be safe, be kind, be ready.